Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Have you heard of the 15-minute city plan? Probably. There's a lot of conspiracy theorists banging on about it at the moment, so you might have seen it pop off on Reddit or YouTube, TikTok, somewhere. Depending on who you ask, it's either a pretty straightforward urban planning idea or it's a government conspiracy to trap us in our homes, ruin our lives, force us into the Hunger Games. Later, we're finding out a bit more about this concept that has sparked protests by conspiracy theorists, find out what it actually is. Also coming up, if you've got a disability and have ever had trouble flying, I want to hear from you because we're hearing from one person who had a nightmare experience and is demanding better from airlines. First, though. Hack. They are the equivalent of the gun lobby in the United States. Our blind spot is poker machines. On Triple J. Yeah, poker machines, pokies. You've seen them, maybe you've played them. And maybe where you live, it's hard to get away from them. Your favourite pub or club might be filled with them. And so many of us are so used to seeing them everywhere that it's not really until someone from overseas, for example, clocks it and says, hey, why have you guys got all these gaming machines that you really start to think about it? And no place is more involved with pokies than New South Wales. Like, half the machines in Australia are in New South Wales. And experts say it rivals places like Las Vegas in terms of machines and gambling. But it's not just the devastating impact of the machines that's got people worried. It's the powerful forces behind them. In particular, one lobby group so influential that a senior Liberal minister in New South Wales has compared them to the gun lobby in the United States and says he was forced out of his portfolio by this group. Let's find out a bit more. The ABC's Four Corners has done a big investigation into this and it's come at an important time as we come up to an election in New South Wales. Reporter Sean Nichols from Four Corners is with us to explain. Hey, Sean, thanks for coming on Hack. So how big of a problem is gambling in New South Wales? Well, as you rightly say, um, that we have a huge number of pokies and it's described in our program tonight as sort of, you know, ground zero for for gambling harm because of the sheer number of poker machines in the state. Opinions vary as to what the level of gambling harm is from poker machines, but there is undoubtedly harm. There's no question that there is absolute devastation wrought to some degree, by, by these machines. Well, yeah, and we're starting to hear a lot more about it, you know, in the last few years, especially young people as well who get caught up in gambling. It's mm. this vicious cycle often. Yep. Can you explain what this lobby group is that you're speaking about on Four Corners? What is Clubs New South Wales? So there are more than 90,000 pokies in New South Wales alone, right? Wow. And that's across pubs, clubs and the casino. What we're looking at tonight is what people regard as the most powerful, aggressive and influential poker machines lobby group in the country. And it's the innocuously named Clubs New South Wales because they represent registered clubs like your footy clubs, uh, your RSL clubs that are members of their organisation. So it's an advocacy organisation, a lobby group that has the interests of these clubs at heart. What we've discovered, though, is that whereas once in Australia your registered clubs were solely focused on community good, you know, they're they're a great hub for for communities providing services, even infrastructure, 
the rivers of gold, the billions and billions of dollars in pokey losses that have flowed out of communities into these clubs, in many people's opinion, has turned them into mini casinos. And so the focus from their lobby group has gone from communities and community good to protecting that revenue. And so we have insiders on our program tonight basically blowing the whistle on this, saying all they care about is money and power. And that's a real problem. And the power aspect of it, what you're exploring is the influence that this lobby group has over politicians, which is pretty extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's been talked about for a long time, I suppose. Some of your listeners might remember there was a massive blow up federally back in 2010 and in the ensuing few years when the then Gillard Labor government tried to introduce some poker machine reforms. They tried to introduce something called mandatory pre-commitment, which was basically every pokey player of every pokey in the country would have had to have signed up to a sort of a card or something similar and basically determined how much they were prepared to lose before they were allowed to play. Now, the industry went absolutely berserk on that. And within a couple of years of a, of a huge campaign, millions and millions of dollars was pumped into this campaign, led predominantly by Clubs New South Wales, but also the Australian Hotels Association representing pub owners, um, the Gillard government was forced to back down. And so that was a great example of just how influential this lobby group can be. What we're digging into in tonight's program is far more recent examples and at a state level. And we speak to one uh, minister in the coalition government of New South Wales by the name of Victor Dominello. Victor Dominello came up with the idea of what's called a cashless gambling system for New South Wales poker machines. He became worried as gambling minister that um, about the, the, the harm that was being done by poker machines in New South Wales. So he thought, well, if we can digitise this almost, um, make people commit to how much money they want to lose and also get the data about how much people are spending where they're spending it, where the real harm is happening, then that would go a long way towards helping, you know, sort out the gambling harm. As soon as he flagged that idea, Clubs New South Wales, the lobby group, went straight at him. And in tonight's Four Corners, he describes the intensity of the lobbying, not just to him, but also his colleagues in the coalition, but also beyond that, other people in the parliament from other parties who they tried to co-opt to put pressure on him not to proceed with this reform. How that all played out and eventually how he says that resulted in him being removed by his own boss from the gambling portfolio. Wow. Well, let's have a little listen to what Victor Dominello had to say on Four Corners. The lobbying was very intense. It was the most intense I've ever seen in 12 years as a minister. And I realised, I'll be honest with you, I realised as soon as I uh, essentially said that we are going to go down this public interest path, um, that my days were going to be numbered because the relationship between myself and clubs was irretrievable from that point. They were absolutely going around undermining me. Essentially, we want a new minister. We can't work with this minister. Right. And so he's retiring now, right, which is probably a reason why he feels pretty comfortable to be speaking out. Exactly. Is this idea that he had the same one that the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet is now taking to the election? Yeah. So so there was an extraordinary sequence of events, actually. The answer is yes. So what happened in between the lobbying campaign against Victor Dominello and now is 
Last October, the New South Wales Crime Commission decided it would like to have a look into the issue of money laundering through poker machines in New South Wales. So it did a big investigation, came out with a report that said billions of dollars in the proceeds of crime from criminals is being put through poker machines in New South Wales. So what did they recommend? Guess what? Mandatory cashless gambling system in New South Wales to stop it. So that gave Dominic Perrottet the political cover to pursue this as a big election issue. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC Four Corners reporter Sean Nichols about his big investigation into the gambling lobby in New South Wales. What about uh, Labor, Sean? What are they promising to do? Because if it is an election issue, um, is Labor backing this idea? What are they saying? Dominic Perrottet, as Premier, has said that he's backing the Crime Commission recommendation fully and that if he is re-elected on March 25, then he will implement it, full stop. Labor leader, opposition leader Chris Minns is being a lot more cautious. He's basically saying, look, um, I'm worried about the potential damage this could do to clubs themselves and communities And so I want to take it a bit slower than that. I want to do a trial of just 500 machines and have that overseen by by an expert panel. And he said on the basis of what that expert panel decides, he will make uh, the next step. You've been covering New South Wales politics for a long time, Sean. Why do you think it is that Dominic Perrottet is going forward with this. Like, it seems like something... Like, former Prime Ministers have tried to make reforms and have failed. Absolutely. So why do you think it is that he's pushing ahead with this? It really is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, You probably recall the big blow-up in January when the club's New South Wales CEO at the time, Josh Landis had a huge go at Dominic Perrottet saying the only reason he's doing this is because of his Catholic gut. And, you know, uh, the Premier is well known as a, you know, conservative Catholic. He was sacked by his own board for making those comments. But then I think it was just days later, uh, Dominic Perrottet did an interview and said, well, actually, that's sort of almost on the money. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I genuinely am concerned about this as a Catholic man who who cares about these deeply about these social issues. And so I think that is actually I haven't asked him. I, I might be completely wrong, but I actually do think that it's coming from a fundamentally decent place for Dominic Perrottet and I think that he sees the harm, understands the harm and generally wants to do something about it. And so uh, look, I think it, it it's something that he's pretty confident about and I don't think it's going to damage him. One of the extraordinary things I found when I was reading your article earlier was the agreements that governments have yeah, signed yeah. with Clubs New South Wales. Can you explain what they are? Yeah, so the Memoranda of Understanding is the formal title, but basically, as you say, they're agreements between the Coalition Government and Clubs New South Wales that have been signed in the months before each state election since 2010. So the first Premier to sign one... Uh, was Barry O'Farrell. He was opposition leader at the time. He obviously became Premier. And that first agreement sort of bound the incoming government to deliver tax cuts on club poker machine revenue profits. And he he did that. Then the next election, um, uh, Mike Baird, who was then Premier, signed a similar MOU. And then Gladys Berejiklian, his successor did exactly the same thing. So 
uh, we've spoken to transparency and governance experts who just find this quite extraordinary that and and raise raise the very legitimate concern that if a government halfway through its term decides, well, actually, we do need to do some reform in this area, their hands are tied to, to some degree anyway. Did you speak to clubs New South Wales or did they answer any questions? So we tried to. Um, we Actually, we were about to seal the deal on an interview with Josh Landis just as he got sacked. Oh, wow. So, so that was kind of unfortunate for both of us, I suppose you'd say. Um, and then after that, we had negotiations with the organisation to see if we could get a replacement interview. But they say that their interim CEO is not ready to do that. Look, we, we ended up just putting a whole bunch of questions to them and they've answered us uh, in writing and we've incorporated as much of that as we possibly could into the program. I mean, this is focused on New South Wales, but are people saying that the impacts of reform in this area could, um, you know, stretch across the country? Like how big of a problem is gambling in other parts of the country? Yeah, so look, New South Wales is the epicentre, but Queensland, Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania, you know, they all have poker machines and there are some long-term, long-time campaigners in this area who are pointing out that if reform goes through in New South Wales, which has the biggest problem, the most pokies, then it's almost inevitable that it's going to roll out across the country. And in fact, just last weekend, Dominic Perrottet gave an interview with News Corp papers saying if he gets re-elected, he will try and take this national. He'll go and speak to state and federal leaders and, uh, and try and make this a national reform. It's really compelling stuff. It doesn't happen often, like you said, a huge investigation. We appreciate you explaining it to us. ABC Four Corners reporter Sean Nichols, thanks for coming on Hack. No worries. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, we're hearing from some of you on the text line, some people calling in. We had one person just call in just then who has experience managing pubs and said, yeah, look, this is a huge problem. It's about time that there was a big investigation into this. There is a lot more to this story. So you can see it tonight on Four Corners. That'll also be on iView if you can't catch it on ABC TV. You can also read the full story on ABC News Online. I never feel quite so much like a burden as I do when I'm getting on an airplane. On Triple J. So getting a flight is stressful at the best of times. I think we can all agree. Arriving on time, checking in, sorting your luggage, the whole scenario. Some people love it though. Others avoid it at all costs, including heaps of people with disability. You're about to hear Isabella's story. She was flying to Ireland when she was told she couldn't sit in her seat because of her disability. And then what followed was a really stressful situation. And Isabella's experience does not seem to be isolated. I'm wondering if you have a disability and you've had issues on flights in Australia or overseas, can you let me know what happened? How was it handled? Call in 1300 0555365536. You can message in too 0439757555. Kimberly Price has this story. I am intimately aware of my capabilities as well as my struggles. For someone to just look at you and assume that you're not capable is really hurtful. Meet Isabella Beale. I'm 23. I'm a law student. I'm a person living with disability. I was born missing my left forearm and hand. Isabella was travelling with her partner's family to Ireland on Singapore Airlines in January. 
Her partner's mum booked the tickets and for a bit more room, paid extra for seats in the emergency exit row. We had just been anticipating it for like six months. But as the plane was about to take off, there was a problem. All of a sudden an air hostess approaches me. She just says, get up, get out of that seat now, you need to get up. And I was like, what is going on? Isabella was seated right next to the emergency exit and under Singapore Airlines policy and in the fine print of their terms and conditions, only fully abled-bodied passengers can sit in the emergency exit row. But what was most alarming for Isabella was the way the situation was handled. Not addressing me by name, not speaking quietly. So, you know, everyone is looking at us at this point and can overhear. I had a little cry just because it was such a affronting thing to happen. Isabella made a complaint when she arrived in the United Kingdom. On the way back to Australia though, she wanted to make sure her seating wouldn't be a problem. So a manager came to speak to me at the Singapore Airlines desk and she's very apologetic, which I thought was great. And she said, it won't happen again. Isabella gets her ticket printed and finds that she's still sitting in an emergency row, but on a seat furthest away from the exit. As the plane is about to take off, it happened again. Because it was the second time around, I was not having a bar of it. And I said, what do you mean I need to move? Also, please address me by name, I'm Isabella. So she spoke to my partner and she spoke to my partner's mother. It felt like there was an assumption that I couldn't understand. More airline and ground staff come up to Isabella, who's trying to make sense of the situation. The ground staff member gestured at my missing limb and just said, well, the problem's obvious, the problem's obvious, and continued repeatedly to say that in front of an entire flight of people. The third time Isabella was told to move seats was on the final leg of her trip, and she just gave in and moved. Now, Isabella wasn't bothered by needing to move. She'd gone to the service desk ahead of time to ensure her seat was the appropriate one to avoid this situation altogether. What bothered her most was the treatment and the contributing airline policy. Disability is the broadest spectrum of things. And to say, if you've ticked that box, then no, is discriminatory because it's not seeing people as an individual. Flying is now so stressful that if I can avoid it, I don't do it. That's Mariah K. Jonkers, Paralympian and Vice President of People with Disability. Travelling with sporting teams and Paralympic teams, so not just me, but my teammates face situations where our abilities aren't listened to or we feel belittled. Throughout her two decade long swimming and athletic career, Marike says she experienced heaps of discrimination from airlines and airports. And one of the most difficult things is just getting the batteries for her wheelchair through the gates. And it's luck with the draw who you got at the ticket counter, whether you're allowed on the flight. You'll get on a flight and there isn't a wheelchair to get through the toilet. The treatment of people with a disability while flying has been highlighted throughout submissions given for the Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability, which will hand down its report in September. I would suggest that we strongly look at airports and airlines in conjunction. Massive redraw of how we do these policies and procedures so that 
They're person-centred and they're co-designed by people with a disability and the airline. Minister for Transport Catherine King says the government is fully committed to removing discrimination for people with a disability in public transport, with submissions currently being taken for the aviation white paper and reforming the disability standards for accessible public transport. Singapore Airlines say they investigated Isabella's complaint. Singapore Airlines found cabin crew operating the flight had determined that Ms Beale did not meet the safety and regulatory requirements to be seated in the emergency exit row. While this decision should have been made either at check-in or during the boarding process, it was not. The airline says they take allegations of discrimination seriously. The staff on board offered their apologies and had taken part in more training. We sincerely apologise to Ms Beale for any distress or embarrassment caused by the request to move from the exit row during her flight. Isabella made multiple complaints to Singapore Airlines and her family did receive a refund for the gap in purchasing emergency exit row seats with more legroom. The bottom line for Isabella is the staff policy and protocol of looking after travellers with a disability needs to change. I understand that there might be policy around this. That's not what I'm saying. I don't, I'm not saying I need you to sit me in the emergency row. I'm saying I need you to treat me like a human being. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that story. A lot of messages coming through. Someone says a family friend from Europe has a disability and has such a hard time catching planes that she doesn't think she'll ever be able to come to Melbourne in her life. That was Kira. Another person says, I got kicked out of the emergency seat for having a cast on my arm. It was only a wrist cast, so not past the elbow, and it was the day before it came off. I don't agree with the way things were handled, but unfortunately the rule is fair. That's that person's opinion. Somebody else, Bianca, says, I'm on crutches at the moment, so only temporary, but I called to let them know that I wouldn't be able to move that well and an aisle seat would be preferable so it wouldn't bother the other customers. They tried to get me to pay for it. Look, a lot of um, experiences, different experiences on this one. We're definitely keen to keep hearing them, so let us know and we'll keep following up. Hack. Food, medicine, education and leisure, all within a 15-minute walk or cycle. On Triple J. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, I'm sure you know. Whether they're about historical events, science, politics, town planning. Not usually up there in the conspiracy stakes, but hey, that's until the 15-minute city saga started. You might have heard of this one. It's been kicking around for a few weeks, especially. Basically, some people on TikTok, YouTube, reckon that planning cities better so you don't have to drive for ages is actually a big government idea to control your mind. There have been rallies around the world, conservative commentators are banging on about it. In a minute, we're going to have a chat to an expert who can tell us a bit about what 15-minute cities actually are and why experts reckon they might make our lives better. But first, here's Shalala Medora explaining what this conspiracy is all about. How great is it to sit in traffic for hours so you can get to uni or find a decent coffee? I don't know about you, but I love it. Turns out I'm not the only one. I'm not doing that. I am not doing a 15-minute city. I like the way I live, and I'm not about to have somebody tell me how I'm going to live. I object to being told where I can and can't move in society. Okay, seriously, though, there are a lot of um, noted intellectuals on TikTok telling me that I should be suspicious of convenience? 
Gates. It's nothing more than a glorified urban prison that's centered around dystopian ideals of tyranny, surveillance, and the inability to move freely within society. I know, I was confused too. It all boils down to this concept of a 15-minute city. Why have we left cities to develop on the wrong path for so long? The phrase was first coined by Paris-based urban planner Carlos Moreno. In a nutshell, it's the idea that cities should be broken up into walkable or bikeable districts that contain everything you need. Hospitals, schools, offices and small businesses. We need to ask what services are available in the vicinity, not only in the city centre. The idea was that it would rebuild a sense of community while reducing our carbon footprint. They're going to try to make people like me sound crazy. How dare I not want to do my part for the environment and to save the planet? Mm, Yes, they're making you sound crazy. Because it was embraced by the World Economic Forum, people jumped to some pretty wild conclusions about the role of big government. How dare you steal my childhood and my future? and the future of all children by enslaving us in your crazy digital surveillance prison. Girl, I just want to walk to the bakery to get a sausage roll. As city planner Brent Tadarian told RN, 15-minute cities used to be normal. Going back to them is about opening things up, not locking them down. We think the car has provided us with freedom, but we're completely 100% car dependent. COVID has made people worry about their freedoms more than ever before. Everything can be a conspiracy, including the usually beige area of urban planning. The thing about conspiracy theorists is they know the old saying in politics, which is, if you're explaining, you're losing. Brent reckons the people who are stirring up this hysteria are doing it on purpose. We're losing because a lie gets a lot more attention than the the rational truth. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. A lot of messages coming through. Nick from Perth says, a conspiracy to make my life better? To reduce my commute a full hour? Sign me the hell up, I say. Yeah, a lot of people are obviously for this idea, so let's find out a bit more. Dr Chris Patterson is from the University of Wollongong. He's a senior lecturer with the School of Nursing. He also knows a lot about mental health, improving lives, and he's written about the 15-minute city plan. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. So what is a 15-minute city in, like, very simple terms? Uh, Absolutely what your package pointed to there. In in simple terms, a 15-minute city is about residents of local communities having access or easy access to, you know, food and groceries locally, uh, healthcare locally, their work, if possible, really 15 minutes from a walk or bike from your house. Right. And so a lot of people might live in 15-minute, well, may not be cities, but towns already, smaller communities, and they can get around pretty easily. Absolutely. This idea is about bringing it back to the city structure. Cities have, have largely grown beyond what was originally expected when planning started. And really what has happened is pushed people and, and health and green spaces to the periphery in a lot of ways. This is about applying the kind of community structure, that neighbourhood structure that you see in maybe rural or remote places, back to the city structure. So you're an expert in health, you know a lot about that. What are the physical kind of advantages of living in a 15-minute city? The main one is is giving people back their freedom, giving back time, as, as one of your listeners pointed out. 
the the access that is available if you can just bike or or walk and, and the time that you get back um you can put into to health to sitting in green spaces to connecting back with your community and family it really is just about making sure that there's social interaction again in your local hub and mental health advantages as well i'd say Oh, absolutely. The mental health benefits of a, of a 15-minute city are, are, are endless. We absolutely know that walking and, and bike riding improves uh, your mental health. But also at the same time, uh, mental health uh, services are looking for ways to make people connected, to uh, focus on social isolation and really make people, again, build communities of support. And 15-minute cities can do that. Got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, what a great idea to cut down on emissions, just have everything close by. Another person says, this is nothing new. It used to just be called good urban planning until we drifted towards an over-reliance on cars. Chris, do we see people who live in maybe European cities um, who generally have better walking access to things, they live healthier lives because of that? The the 15-minute city has been recently applied in a big way to Paris. And absolutely, the, the the data that's coming out there are people have, have really improved, have pr- improved mental health in a lot of ways and physical health as well. Interesting. And I mean, we were just speaking about accessibility for people living with disability in a very, you know, different kind of area flying, just where we only have 30 seconds left. But I imagine it makes cities more accessible as well, right? It, it makes cities accessible to everyone. And that really is the aim, including your older people, Uh, but also people with disabilities as well. To have your local services, including health services, within 15 minutes of your door is really something uh, that the health service should get uh, uh, closer to, and 15-minute cities really provide that template. Great. Well, we appreciate your insight into this. Dr Chris Patterson from the University of Wollongong, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.